Welcome to Travel Worth Living, a travel podcast helping to share stories that matter from around the world. My name is Seth, and I'll be your host today as I talk with Alita, a helicopter pilot working in the outback of Australia. Based near Uluru, the massive sandstone monolith in the heart of the Northern Territory's arid Red Center, Alita takes passengers on scenic flights over the breathtaking desert. During our conversation, she shares what she does during a typical day as a helicopter pilot, how she balances her cross-cultural family relationships, some tips for how you can stay safe while traveling, and why Uluru is so important from both a cultural and geological perspective. I want to say a quick thank you to all those who have left a review and rated this podcast, no matter which platform you listen on. Your support really means a lot, and I always love hearing your feedback. You can find me on social media at TravelWorthLiving or on the web at TravelWorthLiving.com. And now, here's my conversation with Alita. Well, Alita, welcome to Travel Worth Living. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm excited to chat with you. Thanks, Seth. I'm super excited. <laughs> yeah, so... Let's go ahead and start by uh, telling me where you're at right now and what you're doing. So I live uh, in the central outback in Australia, so pretty much smack bang in the middle, uh, in the desert. So I fly helicopters out here doing mainly scenic tours. I reckon maybe 1%, if that, is doing the search and rescue stuff, um, a bit of film photography, yeah, but mainly just scenics, yeah. Got you. That's awesome. And so, yeah, when you live in the outback, um, what exactly, what part of the outback do you live in? Are there different parts? Like, I've, I haven't been to Australia yet, so. There are. Because um, so from the stuff I'm I see on part... Instagram, you're in a very dry part. <laughs> yeah, so I'm in the part that's known as the red center. Because if you've seen all my photos, it's red sand everywhere. It's got, you know, it's really iron-rich soil, so it is bright red. Um, it's, when, when you say the outback, that's what people think of. Yeah. Um, gotcha. But I wouldn't say there's not, like, a bunch of kangaroos hopping everywhere, though, because it's still too hot. It's too dry. There's not enough grass for them. So when tourists come here, they still, like, oh, where are all the kangaroos? You're like, yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> They're taking a siesta. They hopped away. Yeah. <laughs> so what kind of animals do you have there? Uh, lots of reptiles. Lots of snakes, scorpions, lots of lizards. Um, when it's wet season like it is now, wet season, it's like it rains maybe one day every couple of weeks. Um, then you get birds, um, lots of different parrots and stuff like that. Um, camels. We have the largest wild camel population in the world. Fun fact, 1.2 million. Interesting. Um, yeah. And what else do we have here? I mean, we do have like little wallabies and kangaroos, but they're pretty, they don't really come out during the day. You know, they just all come out at night. So you don't really see them. Yeah. Got Mainly you. snakes and lizards. <laughs> That's awesome. And you're there flying uh, with professional helicopter services as, as a pilot. Um, yeah, let's go ahead and, and talk about that. Where did you get your training? So I'll just say PHS because it's a lot shorter than, than saying professional helicopter services. Um, so their main headquarters is in Melbourne, which is where I was born um, and raised. So I went to school uh, in Melbourne at Moorabbin Airport and learned to fly with PHS. Um, it, I started April 2010, so a little while ago. Um, and as we were discussing before, it's very expensive. Um, so it was literally just like chipping away at it, um, over like, I think I looked at my books. It was six years from start to finish for my license for a commercial license. So, um, yeah, did that, um, pretty much made a nuisance of myself while I was there, like volunteered at every formula one. Like they do because they're a pretty big company. They do all the joy flights. So Formula One, MotoGP, Avalon Airshow, like heaps of different things. So um, just ground crew. And so we used to fly in and out, which was really exciting. Um, you know, freebies, tickets to these events. So it was kind of good. Um, but yeah, did that. And then finally they gave me a job <laughs> when I got my license. Yeah. So I worked at PHS in Melbourne for a year before they sent me up here as a, a pilot. So yeah. Got you. Were, were you working as a pilot in Melbourne or were you just working? No. no. Okay. 
So um, initially, I was working just on reception for about mm. four months, um, and then I moved on to the fuel truck. So um, I used to just drive out as ground crew on. We do a lot of power line surveying, um, lidar work, which is um, all the like thermal imaging, um, vegetation stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I'd go out, find a spot for the helicopter to land to refuel. Um, in back paddocks, in wineries, in wherever we were to, to do the power line stuff. Um, same with the fires, so support for the fires. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we get them pretty big here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of made national news last year. Yeah. Were you, uh, did you work on that fire at all? I didn't because I was in the desert. Yeah. Um, but the whole, like we had to send um, two of our machines uh, back to Melbourne pretty quickly um, to help with the fires. So what happens here at Uluru is um, we move aircraft because we've got a base in Queensland as well, which is on the east coast, um, which is a school, but it's also scenics and everything as well. So we have three main bases and we move aircraft around wherever the demand is. So for us, our peak season in the desert is in the cooler months when people are not so silly and they come to visit and it's not 42 degrees. Um, so we'll shift aircraft up here to make sure we've got, you know, enough coverage. So we might have six aircraft up here during the winter months. Um, and then they'll move back to Melbourne, uh, for the fire season, which is usually, you know, October, September, October, it'll start, um, in the fire prep and all of that. So, yeah. Interesting. So last year, like 2020, that wasn't even fire season when all that happened because that was March or February, right? January, February. So it it, it is still f fire season. So our summer, the the prep and everything will start September, October, and then okay. the really hot months, uh, January, February, March. The, yeah. You get the really big winds and stuff like that that'll come through. So that's yeah. when it really you got to be ready before then. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And speaking yeah. of the temperature, you were saying that it, it's what, 8.30 now PM where you are yep. and it's how hot? 38 degrees. That's crazy. Yeah. Which Celsius, for, so yeah. Yeah. Which for uh, my American listeners, that's like 100.4 or something Fahrenheit. That's insane. Yeah. yeah. So I got to 41 degrees today. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> that's <hot>. just, <laughs> just like melt into the red sand. Yeah, yeah, seriously, I was sitting in the helicopter and I'm just like dripping sweat and, you know, you just sit there while they load passengers um, and you're like, oh, I just need to get off the ground because it's, you know, 10 degrees cooler when you're actually flying around up there. Yeah. Um, but sitting on the ground, you just... <laughs> it's amazing how fast it cools off. So did, yeah. you, do, did you do any um, instructing? No. No, so we run it a little bit differently in Australia. Um, when you get your license you enter into either mustering. So you go out to a cattle station, try and get a job, you know, in the outback um, doing cattle mustering, um, or you go into tourism and start getting those hours up, um, experience, you know, doing laps. And then you might do your instructor rating because you need minimum, I think it's 500 or 600 hours to start your instructor rating because they don't want brand new pilots training the next one you know it's a bit so we think yeah so your system yeah. yeah your system is more like canada i know they do that in canada which is opposite of the u.s where it's like the yeah. first thing you do is instruct <laughs> yeah yeah blows my mind but obviously it's a system that works there though so i don't yeah yeah so and you chose tourism over cattle mustering it, I did. why is that uh relatively it's a much easier life <laughs> and I'm scared. I'm not going to swear, but I'm scared, <laughs> scared of uh, the type of flying yeah. that they do with mustering, you know, um, heard a lot of stories, heard lots of stories of, from people and our friends that do it, that love it. Uh, but testing the machine out to those limits and over the limits uh, is, yeah, not, not for me. Uh, you got to have a lot of trust in that industry too, that the guy before you hasn't done anything, you know, um, to the machine before you get in it. Whereas in Scenics, you're pretty, you're pretty standard across the board of how you fly and, you know, we've got pretty particular standards for it. And, uh, yeah, yeah, you're not I enjoy it. Crazy. I like the interaction with people. I mean, I, I'm a talker. I don't know if you noticed that, but 
<laughs> yeah, I love talking too. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah, so cool. So you were you were born and raised in Melbourne, um, but you're also your dad's side of the family is from Indonesia. So you visited there a lot. Have you had a difficult time um, fitting into both cultures, like when you're visiting Indonesia or when you're living in Australia, or have you been pretty much raised in the Australian culture? How has that been for you? Uh, well, definitely raised in the Australian culture, but Indonesia has um, the largest registered population of um, Muslims in the world. Um, so I also was raised with Islam, and then my mum's side um, is Dutch Australian. So I was also raised with Christianity. So I used to have um, Christmas and I had Eid, so I would get double the presents every year kind of thing. But, <laughs> you know, that was a plus. Um, but, you know, I grew up doing Ramadan, the fasting, and, and sort of, you know, would go to Saturday school, Sunday school. But then when it came to when I turned um, 16, dad and mum have always been like, freedom of religion, that's what religion is. If you don't believe it, then you can't be forced to believe anything. So you sort of develop your own morals, ideas, um, you know, all those sort of things with that sort of framework um, just to be basically a good person. So when I go to Indonesia, a lot of my family is uh, Islamic, but yeah, just sort of fit right in because I was brought up with that side. So I know um, sort of different behaviors and different customs and things like that. Um, so yeah, never been an issue like I'll wear the headscarf go to prayers because at the weddings they have three-day weddings which are intense <laughs> but good lots of fun <laughs> I I love that I love cultures that do like the long weddings because it's such a celebration like why do we do a two-hour service and we're done you know <laughs> uh, that's interesting and and yeah I, I can tell that your dad and mom had that uh, view of religion because I mean they were married and they came from two different yeah. like yeah. how did that work that's crazy yeah, well, they both met in Melbourne um, when they were at university, different unis uh, studying. Um, yeah, and so they met in Melbourne, and then that's just the rest is history, you know, five yeah. kids later. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, you've, you've been to Indonesia a lot. What is, what is the culture like there? Um, well, it's very I, – I think it's very different now to how it was when I went there, like, as a child, you know, um, as a, I think I was 11 maybe when I first went over there. Um, you know, I spent like a month there uh, traveling around, meeting different family and stuff. And the biggest thing I noticed is the culture change with uh, the environmental impact and mm. social awareness um, because in one respect it's a third world country with all these little villages and um and quite a big poor population um, in, you know, slumming it kind of thing. And then you've got the city where they've got this immense wealth as well, you know, like, so there are some family members where I'm like, they did what? How much did they spend on their wedding? Like what, like it, for me as an Aussie where the dollar is worth so much more than the Indonesian rupiah, I'm in shock at how much, you know, yeah. affluence there is as well. So I've sort of seen both and um, I think, yeah, the culture over there um, still doesn't matter which which part of the family you're from. The the family connection is very strong, though. So my dad has traced our family back 500 years, you know, mm. and we drive from the city up to the villages um, and meet people who knew people who knew people, and then you support them at their level, though. So like, you don't go in there and give them fifty dollars. That's a year's wage, even though we could. You just don't do that. It's like, yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's because because it's it's a bit disrespectful as well. Yeah. Um, and it's yeah. So it's yeah, just learning those sort of customs as well, and and how you you work with family and different people and from different areas. But. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Um, it can totally come across as disrespectful because it's almost like you're flashing your wealth, you know, because it yeah. takes away their their um their dignity as somebody who can earn their wage, you know? So there was, I remember instances where we'd be driving up to the village, you know, to visit cousins or grandpa or something, and you didn't want people to know you were coming because we were the family from Australia. They wanted to put their best foot forward. They wanted to show us, you know, what they have, and, and they would send runners because – 
everyone in the village knows everybody, they would send runners to go get chicken from this place, to go get um, sweets from this place. And they would, they would spend their week's wage on a lunch for us. And so we'd try and not let them know that we were coming because they just wanted to, to show us and welcome us. And, you know, it was, yeah. So it was sort of mixed feelings a little bit, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. So yeah, kind of coming from that culture, do you, what is your view on um, how, like, what would you tell other people who kind of grow up in, in two different cultures? How can you navigate that and be um, polite to this culture and fit into this culture and kind of fit into both? That's such a complex question um, because it comes down to, it will always come down to you as an, an individual, your beliefs, your values, and um, you can always be nice to people. The number one thing in life is just be nice, you know, just seriously, you'll go so much further if you're just nice to people. Um, but yeah, just just have some respect and, and um, listen. Just, just listen and know where they're coming from. Like I have um, some quite strong religious people in the family and then I have some people who are very science-minded and they don't believe in God or creation at all. Um, so we have some very interesting conversations uh, at family gatherings. Um, but, yeah, definitely with two cultures, you just have to pick and choose the best bits, I reckon. And just, you know, as long as nothing's harming or hurtful to anybody and you're um, very true to yourself, don't be afraid also to to um, sort of let people go as well. Mm. Um, I know, you know, and not so much in my own family, but, um, you know, friends and things like that where they might have cousins or, or something that have a totally different outlook or culture and it just doesn't it doesn't suit and it's like well your family but yeah we just we just don't need it you know yeah. so you just have to be true to yourself and and do what makes you happy and if you're uncomfortable in the situations then you don't need to be in them you know as much as you want to be nice to people as well yeah you know you got to do what's good for you so i love that that's that's fantastic advice so if i were to visit Indonesia after COVID is over. Um, mm -hmm. What are some of the must-see places that you would recommend? I would definitely go to East Java, into the, the mountains, um, you know, where the big tea plantations are and um, the rainforests are. and um, It's just beautiful country there. Um, the people are just lovely, amazing um, not just saying it because that's where my family is from, but yeah, like it's a really nice part of the country. Um, not a lot of people visit Indonesia except for the islands like Bali, um, you know, they might go to Kalimantan. There's a lot of surfing, so I know a lot of um, travellers will go to the islands to do surfing and, and diving and things, which is awesome. Um, definitely recommend going to Bali for that sort of thing. Stay out of the city of Kuta though, just like go into the hills Go to the coast, um, just it's mini Australia over there. So I just sort of get out a little bit away from uh, the, the tourists. Um, but yeah, definitely go to Bali, go to um, the Gili Islands, some places that I was going to travel to but haven't yet um, would be like Sumatra, Sulawesi. Um, there's some really beautiful uh, animal reserves and things, um, conservation parks. Um, you know, untouched rainforest, um, which is really just will blow your mind. You know. That would be cool. So there's that side as well, yeah. But um, the city, the city itself, like I said earlier, it's it's changed a lot. There used to be a lot of rubbish, a lot of um, burning. They burn so much rubbish. Um, you know that Singapore and like they would all be covered in smoke from Indonesia. You know, it just drift across. Um, it's gotten a lot better. Like they used to have more days of smog than blue sky. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The pollution levels were crazy in Indonesia. So they've done a lot to curb that. Like they have whole days dedicated, I think it's once a week actually, um, where they close these central roads through Jakarta, which is the capital. Um, so it's only open for bicycles and walking, you know, which we don't do that in Melbourne, you know, or, you know, there's some big cities that wouldn't do that, but it makes yeah. such an impact. 
over there, like just one day of no cars. It's yeah, wow. it's pretty cool. That's awesome. Um, what What's your favorite food in, from Indonesia? So I'm like the adopted child. So <laughs> mum used to cook food and she used to put mine aside because I really can't do chili. Like I start crying and coughing and like everybody else could do chili. I would have to hide in my room while she cooked it because even in the air, like I would be like, ah, ah, ah. Um, so yeah, I, I like the stuff that doesn't have chili, <laughs> which doesn't leave a lot. Yeah. Um, so like the two main dishes are sate, so skewers, meat skewers with sate sauce, the peanut sauce. Um, or gado gado, which is basically um, a vegetarian plate. So it has boiled eggs, it's got bean shoots, it's got cooked green beans, um, fresh tomatoes. It's just a big sort of um, not mixed. It's all like portioned, um, looks beautiful. And then you'd have that with dipping sauces and stuff. So mm-hmm. a veggie dish, yeah. They're probably my two favorite, satays and gado gado. Yeah. And they're really easy to make too. So. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. So, yeah, when you were growing up, uh, when you were a teenager, you also did an Air Force cadet exchange student program, right, in the UK. Uh, Tell me about that. How did that opportunity come about? So I joined the Air Force cadets when I was 13, um, and I stayed on until I was 20, which is the age you get kicked out because you're too old. Um, So you joined there in Australia? In in Australia, yeah. yeah. And it's sponsored the whole cadet program army navy air force is sponsored by the australian government defense force right so for my parents being one of five kids it was a very cost effective way for me to spend my school holidays and do because it was very cheap um i would go away for a week at a camp somewhere and it wouldn't cost anything and i'd be there for the whole whole school holidays you know um so i've been able to go to some really awesome places um, so the UK one came up, you had to do an application, um, it was sponsored by Boeing. So they paid for all of the flights and everything. Um, and we stayed at air force bases and military bases in the UK. So we even transport, we were on the queen's private jet, um, you know, from one place to another, I was like, Oh, the queen's sat here and what? we got to, you know, sugar cubes in tea and biscuits, you know, on the plane. Like it was really cool. One of the guys was like, Oh, I've sat on the queen's toilet. I was like, Oh God. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, we're teenagers. I think I was 16, so it's yep. pretty funny. Um, but yeah, so I went a month um, exchange to the UK, which was just an amazing trip. Um, made some really lifelong friends as well, who I've then visited because it's a worldwide program. I um, I visited them. I've got some friends in Belgium, Germany. Um, so when I went to to live in Germany a few years later. I was um, visiting um, the friend that I made in the UK. So yeah, I visited a few people in Europe from that trip. So really good. A couple have been to Australia to visit me too. So yeah. Nice. Yeah. So, so tell me what you actually did at the camp. Like what, what were you doing there as an Air Force cadet? um, The first week was school holiday program for the UK cadets. So we went on a camp at a military base where there were things like um, uh, excursions to learn about, you know, or see museums, different military museums. Um, we went to the firing range and we got to handle different weapons um, and fire different weapons, which was cool. Um, we had uh, scenarios, like team scenarios, where we were versing each other, um, like tag kind of stuff. Um, it was, we have drill competitions, so marching like formation marching, which is pretty geeky, but I love that stuff. Like right. I used to be a, a cadet warrant officer, so I have I have the voice still, you know, to, to call commands from like, you know, 500 meters away or whatever. Um, so that was really fun. And then the rest, like we went on a tour basically to, you know, government house. Um, we went to London Bridge and it was just a, a cultural exchange as well. So we went to visit all the highlights um, in London and yeah. It was, yeah, all over, just wow. a bit of a mix of military and cultural exchange. So, yeah. That's awesome. And what about the Air Force Cadet program in um, Australia? Uh, what exactly kind of was the, was the emphasis behind it and what did the program do for you? 
So it was, it's really a youth development program. Okay. So you get kids starting, I mean, you can start at any age really, um, but you get kids starting at 13 like I did. Um, so you're in year seven, you, first of all, you get to meet people that are not in your school. Like I didn't do school, like I didn't do sports. Um, so I didn't have that sort of friendship group outside of school. Um, but I had a big cadet friendship group because cadets is all over the country. So you would meet at these camps on the holidays and you'd have three people that have come from, um, I'd name all these towns, but you wouldn't know any of them, <laughs> but you know, from all, all over the state. And then you'd have interstate camps as well. So, uh, you know, one trip I went to Canberra and there were, you know, 10 people from the equivalent of going from New York to, to LA or something, you know, they'd just be across the whole country. You get three people from here, two people from there, and um, you'd all, all meet up and learn um, aircraft, general knowledge, basic aviation, uh, the drill and ceremonial stuff. Uh, you'd learn uh, bushcraft and fieldcraft because we had excursions where we'd go camping in the bush, survival, um, you know, learn to, to hunt animals and, and, and how to cook, prepare, um, that sort of thing. Um, what other subjects were there? So there, it was a structured subject, you know, so you'd have the induction level at sort of the 13, 14, then you'd have the basic then you'd have proficiency and then the advanced level. So as you move through, it was kind of like schooling, but with, you know, you had exams and assessments and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but, and then you have promotion courses as well. So you'd go away for a week and get your corporal stripe or your sergeant, you know. So I did all those. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a good lead in um, for leadership development. Um, communication, personal development. I learned a lot about myself and being able to work with other people, team building. Um, they actually introduced a, so with the promotion courses, um, they actually introduced recognized uh, certificates, diplomas that went with that. So, you know, I was 18 going on a, a two-week course and it was recognized certificate as frontline management for people you know, because I've just run a camp with 200 people and I've done, you know, all that sort of experience on the job uh, experience. So, yeah, it, it opened up a lot of things for me. Um, it was pretty good. And then we are the biggest um, recruiter for military as well. Mm. I think, yeah, uh, of, of the recruiting um, for across all three services, the Air Force cadets um is the the most amount of cadets that end up in the military? Yeah. Wow. Do, does each branch have, uh, or does each service have a cadet program? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh wow. So the Navy cadets is quite small, just like our service, it's quite small. Um, the Army cadets has the biggest numbers. Um, again, they've got the biggest service as well. Um, but I'd say the Air Force cadets, um, it's got a lot of a different. It's got a bit of a different training structure and focus, and it does tend to go more into um, the officer kind of mm. roles in in the defence. So you find across Navy, Army, or Air Force, a lot of them will have the Air Force cadet background. Yeah. Got you. That's an awesome program. I, I I feel like that's so important for young people to kind of just give them structure and give them a focus and give them responsibility. Like kids need that. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love programs like that. So there was also flying camps and parachuting camps and, and things. So like I had, I went back as a staff member when I was 20 to 25, um, sorry, 25 to 30. So I took five years off and then I went back for five years. Um, and I had a student who was 16. She got her private pilot's license and she flew her parents to Perth. So say from LA to New York and back by herself and her parents, um, took a week, you know, they, they yeah. stopped along the way as you have to. Um, but she didn't even have a car license yet because in Australia, you don't get your license till you're 18. So she could drive, she could fly, but she couldn't even drive. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's probably more dangerous driving than flying anyway. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you'd mentioned you also went to um, Germany and you did like 
the couch surfing, which it's uh-huh. funny because I don't feel like couch surfing is that big of a thing anymore. It kind of like peaked and then dead. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. I still well, actually I haven't gotten it in a while, but I'd get like blog posts from couch surfing and I was like, are they just trying to like, you know, get people but then now twenty twenty has happened, COVID, so I don't even know what's mm. what's happening with them, but but it's the same with Airbnb, though. I was having this discussion with some friends because Airbnb is pretty, um, you know, pretty big, and it's it turns to money. Same with couch surfing; it just turned to money. It became a, a little bit less about connecting with people. Um, like Airbnb was connecting with people. You find a local who lives there, and you move into a house that may be a room or you know a weekender or something. But there's character. You get to know. It's not in a creepy way, but you you know you see the family um, yeah. photos or your books, and there's there's things there um, to go. Oh, this is what someone in San Francisco lives like. This is what someone in Sydney lives like. You know, um, but now, yeah, it's really difficult to find that. You know. Yeah, I think that authentic travel is kind of. I mean, it's what inspired me to start this podcast, and it is what I love about travel because I really want to get to know different cultures and different people and how people different, how people live in different areas of the world. Because like we were talking about earlier with your mix between Australia and Indonesia, like the different cultures, understanding how different people operate helps us, goes a long ways in helping us uh, be more empathetic towards other people. Um, because not everybody's going to make the same decisions. And this goes down into politics, into religion, into, you know, all sorts of different things. And if we start getting upset at other people because they don't think like we do, then we're the problem because we're not being empathetic and understanding where mm-hmm. they come from. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, no, I think, yeah, that's that's kind of, that's sad. But, yeah, I agree. Like, Airbnb, of course, they're, they're public now. They're a publicly traded company. They're just, like, mm-hmm. this huge thing. So, yeah, yeah it's hard. But- Couch surfing, like, so I started in Australia because it was all based on profile, reviews, um, connections, and trust, right? Um, so I started in Melbourne basically just uh, putting myself out there, saying I was available to um, basically be a tour guide in Melbourne. Hit me up for a drink. We'll go for a walk. I'll show you my favorite bits of the city. You leave me a review. I leave you a review. Um, happy days, you know. Um, again, I've still got friends from when I started that back in 2007, you know, so I've got mates still from Melbourne. And then once I had probably about, I started it a few months, probably about six months before I decided to travel. And it was a fully conscious, I'm doing this because I'm going to go overseas next year and I want to be able to, you know, do this overseas. Um, so I, when I went to Europe the following year after I graduated university, I Message these people. I said, I'm going to be in your city from this date to this date. Have you got a room available or a couch or whatever? And they're like, yeah, yeah, come visit. Cool. And then in the places where I didn't know anybody, I would search for profiles. Oh, yeah, they're interested in this. Are these people interested in that? Um, And they'd say, like, oh, if you're going to stay with me, you know, basically, people say in Paris or London, the big cities, they might get 100 requests a week. You know, mm-hmm. so you had to really make it personal and, and read the person's profile and actually try and connect before you even meet them, you know, and try and choose because in a way you're kind of competing against people that want to stay with them because it's free as well, yep. you know. Um, so, yeah, I'd maybe write to about 10, 10 12 people, um, you know, maybe sometimes if I knew a month before I was going because I, I took 13 months of traveling over Europe. So sometimes it would be a month before, sometimes it would be two days. I'm like, oh, I'm jumping on the train. This is a a 10 euro ticket. I'm just going to go there wherever that is, you know. Um, And and then I'd message go, oh, yeah, I'm coming to town tomorrow. You're available. And most most of the time I got, you know, three or four responses. So I could then choose as well Um, or choose to meet for a coffee, might not actually stay at their place. Um, but you always had to have backup, you know, especially being a young girl traveling by myself, you know, yeah, had to always have a backup. So I never really understood the stories of people who go, you know, had organized to go to stay at someone's place and then gotten into a bad situation because I would personally always meet the host first and you get a vibe off someone, you go, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, cool. Let's go to your place, you know, and then we'll go out and do whatever. But, yeah, I, I never had any issues traveling. 
Um, but I certainly heard a, a few stories which were, you know, a little bit disheartening as well. Um, but it it all comes back to the trust, the reviews, the system, knowing the system and making the system work for you as well. So, And yeah, I still I travel like that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it. I, I remember um, it was like when it first came out, we were like looking over couch surfing profiles. And I, I do remember oh. there were a couple like, it would be um, these single guys and they're like looking for female guests only. And it's kind of like, mm, you know, that's just, that's a weird vibe right there on the profile. So yeah, you have yeah, to yeah. be, you have to be smart about it. And I think that's one of the biggest assets with traveling is being able to pick up on people's vibes right away. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, you have to decide whether to trust somebody or not trust somebody pretty, pretty quickly. And that can be tough. Um, yeah, so I mean, you've already shared some good examples or good tips, but what about uh, any other tips for traveling if you're a single female traveler? Um, Most specifically, yeah, like the I, safety issue. <laughs> yeah, the safety side of things, huge. You know, you've always got to have an out. Um, you've always got to have a story as well. Um, because you might meet someone at a bar, you might meet someone at the beach. Um, it doesn't have to be the couch surfing thing where you've organized to stay at their place, you know? Yeah. Um, but you have to just always be aware that they might not be who they say they are, you know? Um, and don't be so forthcoming with all your personal information, you know? Um, maybe don't let them know that you're traveling by yourself or that you, you know, are staying at a stranger's house or you're, you know, that sort of stuff. You keep a little bit of stuff personal. Um, especially when you're meeting new people in different cities where you don't have a support system there and let people know where you're going. Um, you know, that I got Facebook back when it was only for university students. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> I'm old now. Um, <laughs> and, but that was the best platform to connect with family and friends, like really quickly. Um, I could flick a message and it was free because it was on the internet, you know. It wasn't um, messaging or phone calls. Um, mm -hmm. And it didn't matter the time zone or whatever. Um, I knew that they – I always had and, – and same with people within Europe when I was traveling as well. They would get the message that I'm, I'm here or I'm going here or, you know, always let people know where you're going. Um, because sometimes, you know, 24 hours, if you go missing for 24 hours, that's a long head start, you know. Yep. for something to happen so it's worth you know even two hours oh, I'm going I'm just going to the museum down wherever or going to the beach um you know I'll check in at 10 o'clock or whatever you got to be so yeah don't take it for granted <laughs> like be be yeah. open with communication with when you're traveling for sure yeah I love we that. get that in the desert here you know um we actually oh well, it was before COVID but um one of the girls, new staff member, only been here for a couple of weeks, um, she said she was going to go for a walk and then she didn't come back. Like, And it was like six hours. And we're talking it's, it's heat. You know, she'd taken a little 600ml drink bottle with her. She wanted to walk to the rock, which you can't do. Like town is it's, – it's a 20, 30-minute 20, drive from town, let alone trying to walk it, you know. Um, in the desert so she just walked out into the desert we had to do a search and rescue luckily um, the ground police found her first and she was severely dehydrated and disoriented and you know just like if someone had told you know or you'd asked you know for directions or you would said what you're doing to somebody they would have been able to give you the advice oh hey no don't try and walk out to Uluru like don't try and do this there's a better way to do something you know yeah yeah, man, that's that's scary. Um, but that's so important. Yeah, I love I love all those tips. And I think the biggest thing is just being intentional about it and thinking ahead, not just kind of like going with the flow and then you find yourself in a really bad situation because somebody else was thinking ahead for bad purposes, mm -hmm. you know, and then you find yourself caught it stuck basically. Yeah. So Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Um yeah, so now you're in Uluru, uh, living mm -hmm. in the red center. Um, yeah. So what is Uluru? Is that, I'm, I'm saying it with an accent, it's probably just Uluru. How, how yeah. do you say it? <laughs> no, that's, the, 
that's pretty. You don't roll the R. I probably okay. say it with my own accent too, you know, um, Uluru. Yeah. Yeah. And Wait that's... till you get to Kata Judah, which is the other formation that's out here that 80% of people don't know about <laughs> until they get off the plane and they go, oh my God, what is that? Um, yeah, there's another formation out here as well, which is, or there's a couple, which are pretty awesome. So Interesting. when you come here to visit, yes. don't just spend two days here. Like you got to spend a week. Like there's so much to see here. Wow, that'll be awesome. So, yeah, so uh, Uluru is the name of the rock, right? What? Yep. Yeah, so is it just beautiful? Like, what is some history about the rock? Like, what? Yeah, what is it? <laughs> Do I put my tour guide voice on? Like, my Sounds helicopter? Good. Uh, <laughs> um, so, Uluru is the largest single rock monolith in the world. Um, it's kind of like an iceberg where it's just sticking up the top. This is a puzzle that has been hanging in this house forever, um, but that's the rock. Or you can go to my Instagram and check it out too. Um, <laughs> I've got lots of photos. But yeah, so we just see the top of it and underneath it is up to 2.6 kilometers down. So it's massive under the ground um, as well. So basically in the ground, part of this um, alluvial fan, you know, 500, 600 million years ago, we had this massive mountain range that all eroded down. We had the inland sea from all the melting ice caps and everything. The sea drained away, got really hot. We got salt lakes, the desert, um, the sand compacted. Basically, this fan of rock, we then had what's called the Alice Springs orogeny, which was about 150-ish million years ago. Big seismic shift pushed all pressure built up and the rock twisted and pushed up like that so it's on a 90 degree angle so you see all the lines you know in the pictures that go across it mm. they used to be the horizontal sedimentary layers right so as it got pushed up it was rotated in the earth's crust so that's why it's pretty special interesting and then there's the cultural significance. Yeah. yeah tell tell us about that so the uluru katajuda national park is um, pretty unique because it's got two World Heritage listings, UNESCO World Heritage. Um, one is for the park itself, um, you know, the sand dunes, the rock formations, the significant habitat. Um, the second one is for the cultural significance because the Indigenous Australians, sometimes called or referred to as Aboriginal people, but the Indigenous uh, people here, um, they've been the longest running culture in the world, continuous culture. So over 60,000 years of evidence has been found in Australia of this culture. Um, at Uluru specifically, it's between 30 and 35,000 years of occupation at Uluru. So yeah, mind blowing. It's, um, it, yeah, so there's a lot of, um, not just the spiritual connection, but just human connection, you know, um, with their, their storytelling and their knowledge of the land and, and how they, um, teach things and pass things on for that length of time, you know. Um, it's, yeah, it's just an incredible culture. Um, so I'm always learning more and more. That's why I love it out here. <laughs> Interesting. So how many, I guess, tribes of the um, Indigenous Aboriginal people are there? Oh, I don't know that number. There are But there's a lot. A lot. Okay. Uh, yeah, so at, before uh, European settlement, um, there were hundreds, over 200 different language groups, languages. So it's kind of like you've got Europe, right? You've got all these different people, right? Different languages, different cultures. We had that in Australia, yeah. but they all got lumped into one, right? And so people would just go, oh, they're the indigenous people. That's one. No, it used to be there's, you know, from all these different areas have different stories and different, um, you know, ways of doing stuff, um, different knowledge to pass on. Because the people in the desert, they don't know anything about the coast. They, they never go to the coast, you know, like it's, yeah. So their languages, unless they're trading, you know, you've got those border languages where they start to mix, you know, from one to another and connect that way, just like through through Europe, you know. Yeah. Yeah. How, so how, did, how did they survive there in Uluru? Like, do... Yeah, do you have like natural oases oases there or <laughs> So, 
Um, they didn't have air conditioning. How the heck no, did they No, no air conditioning, no. <laughs> um, well, I'm not by any means an expert on this. You know, mm-hmm. I've lived here for three and a half years and I still, I, yeah, I'm not an expert. So don't take what I say as gospel. This is my own impression and things I picked up. How much of it is true, I, I still don't really know, um, you know, because lots of people say different things. Um, but um, basically, you know, you, like anyone, it's not like your backyard, this is your property, this is where you stay. You know, it's the whole country. So mm. you go where the water is, you go where the food is. Um, it wasn't like nomadic, you know, oh, we didn't occupy this place, we went here, then we went here. It was one land, one area, you know, but we were just down the back paddock instead of the front paddock, you know, um, <laughs> but it covers hundreds of kilometres, you know. Um, so, yeah, they just like anyone, they, they follow where the water is, where the, where the food sources are, um, and, yeah, that's how they survived, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. It it baffles my mind how these people survived in such harsh conditions. Like, yeah. So, yeah, so you do, you talk a lot about, like, the cultural heritage. You talk about the natural heritage. Um, what else do you, what what else do you share as a helicopter tour guide pilot? Um, you know, we do talk a bit about the European explorers, how things got their names, um, because, obviously, Uluru was known as Ayers Rock for a very long time um, and people still, visitors still come here and they go, oh yeah, Ayers Rock. And the only time I call it Ayers Rock is when I'm on the airwaves because it's a reporting point, it's called the rock. And same with the other formation out here, it's called the Olgas. Um, but in conversation and um, in commentary and everything, it's Karajita and Uluru. Like that, because as I said, they've been known that for thousands and thousands of years. Like, who are we to say, oh, you know, 50 years ago, let's just change the name and call yeah. it, you know, Ezrock, you know. Colonialism enters the chat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I could say that... like 100 and something years, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. So, don't what fact is... check me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is a typical day like for you um, there as a pilot at PHS? Um, so at the moment, it's pretty different to how it was in 2019. Mm, um, so 2018, 2019, we probably had, the resort had its biggest years. Um, not only because tourism was increasing, becoming more accessible um, with the airlines and direct flights and stuff to Uluru, but because uh, very well advertised was the closure of the Uluru climb. Um, used to be able to climb the rock to the highest point. Um, but culturally, uh, it was, wasn't accepted. So you had to be basically, um, there's sacred sites up there and things like that. And, a and a very strong cultural connection to this place. And only certain people were able to walk up there from the indigenous uh, groups. Um, so by having basically outsiders come in, climb the rock, um, it was more from a place of conquer, mm. you know, like, oh, I claim the rock I've done, the, you know, rather than from a place of understanding um, because if you were really there to connect with uh, the local culture and the people, you choose not to climb. So it was a really big um, uh, thing over the last, you know, 20, 30 years of not to climb. Interesting. And they had to, yeah, it was sort of, it was pretty hard with uh, the tourism board and everything. Like there was um, this strict criteria that was set out in order to say, yes, we can close the climb because it was such a big draw card, especially for international tourists and stuff to, to be able to climb it. Um, but yeah, they met all these criteria, like um, the number of visitors, percentage of, of people that actually came here compared to those who came here to climb the rock. Um, it got down below, I think it was below 15% of visitors or some, something like that um, had to choose or, or chose to climb the rock. And it was like, well, We've hit that number. Obviously, there's other stuff for people to do here. Um, yeah. So we'll, we'll close it. So it closed 26th of October 2019. Um, and then we had, I think we had 11 pilots. We had five, six machines aircraft here just with our company. There's another 
helicopter company and there's a fixed wing as well that do scenics here. Um, whereas now we've got two pilots and two machines. Um, we only just got one back a month ago. Yeah, so it was a mass exodus last year because the resort closed, everything closed in March. No one knew what was going on, you know. Yeah. Um, this town really lives off, um, you know, tourists. So if there's no one traveling, the town essentially went into hibernation. Um, yeah, so my typical day now, I mean, it still feels busy because I might be the only pilot on, you know. So yeah. I'm doing the pickups, the drop-offs. I'm on the phone doing the reception. I'm dailying the aircraft. I'm refueling it. I'm flying, coming back, doing it again, you know. Um, so I might have six or seven flights, might do three or four hours a day um, of flying. Um, yeah, so that's sort of typical, I guess. And, you know, we do flights that are 15 minutes is our shortest one. Um, our longest one is like a half-day tour, which is just over two hours of flying, and we go out to another place uh, called Kings Canyon. Um, so we go out, yeah, to a few different places. Yeah, so what's, always interesting. Yeah, what's your favorite flight? Um, I really like going to Lake Amadeus. So that's the largest salt lake in the Northern Territory. Um, it's about 15, 15 to 20 mile north of town um and you fly over it to get to king's canyon so those flights are always good because you still get to see it um but yeah usually uh, that's our 55 minute flight is to do uluru katajuda and lake amadeus and that is just beautiful it is like a painting um go check out my photos like it's like it looks like it should be filled with water because in um in wintertime, it's really, really dry, so it goes really white. And then you've got these little islands um, of red sand in it with little bushes and trees, um, and it's just like a bay of islands. And then in the summertime, when we get rain, it changes colour. So you might get patches of water, um, and then you get algal blooms, um, you get different microorganisms growing in the salt crust, so they then change the colour as well, like blues, greens, blacks. Um, yeah, it's just... That's probably my fave. Wow, that sounds gorgeous. That's awesome. So do you do you find yourself doing shorter flights most often or do you get to do the long flights fairly often? Um, at the moment, we do... Our, probably our number one flight is the 25 minutes because yeah. you go to Uluru and you go to Katajuda as well. Um, that's probably the most popular. A lot of things or packages or things that travelers are getting when they come to Uluru is two night or three night stays, right? So they come here um, and a lot of them have planned different trips, sunrises, sunsets for Uluru. And then they haven't really planned anything for Katajuda. So the helicopter flight is the way that they get to see it because it's about a 50 minute drive each way. Um, that's if you hire a car when you get out here. But if you're relying on a tour bus or something to get you out there, it's a little bit less accessible. Um, so yeah, so getting the helicopter is one way that people go, oh, we can see that while we're here, even though we can't go on the ground, you know, to, to see it. So yeah, that's probably our most popular one. That makes sense. And what helicopter, uh, yeah. What helicopter do you fly or do you have a couple different types? Uh, we've got a couple of different types. So our main one, um, is the Bell Long Ranger cause that's six passengers. Um, so that's, really nice we got it refurbed it had its 1200 hour overhaul complete paint job everything stripped um came back looking super fly um so that one has the doors are windows so it goes all the way to floor to ceiling windows now um so that's yeah that's the scenic machine it's like a big boat like a limo it's super smooth um we also have jet rangers 206s um which are basically the same but without the middle two seats um, so that's our four, four passengers. And then in the peak season, we'll bring up, um, the AS350 squirrels. So that's five passengers, um, and the EC130. So we'll have, um, six passengers in that one. Um, so they'll come up, I think, cause we use them in Melbourne, um, a lot, like over the summer, you know, they also do a lot of charter work, uh, weddings, all that sort of stuff. And the fire contracts as well. 
Mm. Um, it kind of works well, you know, to do the other half of the year in the desert when we're busy, you know, in the wintertime. So, and same with the machine performances to a degree as well. Um, European machines are a little bit suited to the cooler weather <laughs> rather than, you know, belting them at 40 degrees every day. You know, the bells seem to really love it and, and you know, they do really well out here. So, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's, man, you must be, you must be pushing it with the, with the heat. Um, yeah. <laughs> and are you type rated in all of them then? Are you able to fly every machine? Uh, so I'm not rated on the EC-130, but okay. I do have the yeah, Jet Ranger. And then it's just a, um, a differences training for the Long Ranger. It's oh, okay. pretty similar. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the AS350 I've got as well. Awesome. Cool. Well, um, yeah, if people wanted to get in touch with you and, yeah, say, hey, thanks for sharing all your stories on the podcast or uh, finding out more about your piloting career down there in Australia. Yep. How, what is the best way for them to do that? Um, the best way is definitely Instagram. Um, so I am Lily Pink. So li.li.pink. I like the color because that's my favorite color. Um, <laughs> I haven't grown up yet. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's the best way. Feel free to message me. I generally... Uh, reply to all messages um, but yeah I try not to get too distracted while I'm on the job <laughs> so time zones and that sort of thing but yeah generally I'll reply to everybody so say hi <laughs> yeah awesome all right well I want to finish this with a rapid fire facts section do you prefer beaches or cities beaches what's your favorite city that you visited I want to say Melbourne. That's where I was born and raised, and I love Melbourne. But otherwise, I'd say Hamburg in Germany. That's also where I lived for a little bit, and it's very similar to Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, love it. What is the worst food that you've ever tried besides chilies? Uh, besides chili food? Um, oh. It was actually a drink, but we won't go there. <laughs> um, <laughs> But food-wise, anything that has that really strong aniseed flavor, I just don't have the taste buds for that, that licorice kind of fennel flavor. Or I call it, or the other one is um, big leaves of coriander. I call it the devil weed um, when I taste it. Like I love Asian food and if it's really chopped up and it's mixed in with like different flavors, don't really notice it, it's fine. But when you get big leaves and you think that they're parsley and it's, Cori uh, it's coriander or cilantro, you know, uh -huh. as it's also known as, and you eat it, oh, it just makes me feel sick. It just, <laughs> it just ruins the meal. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, do you prefer Apple or Android? I was Android for so long and I loved my little Samsung, um, but I got the iPad doing all my nav planning and mm -hmm. having set up in the aircraft um, so then I needed the phone to communicate it with it as well um, and so I ended up switching to Apple but my laptop is still Windows though. <laughs> nice you've you've partially joined the cult yeah, yeah. Not all the way yeah. Yet. Uh, do you prefer group or solo travel solo yeah what is your favorite airport that you visited Changi Airport Singapore oh my god you could like just live there. You don't even need a hotel in Singapore. You just stay at the airport. They've got beds, free massage chairs. They've got movie cinema. You know, they've got gardens. You could just stay there. It's the whole yeah. town itself. Yeah. yeah. They've got a slide. Like, it's cool. <laughs> Do you prefer a strict schedule or go with the flow while traveling? While traveling, go with the flow. Yeah. I feel like as a pilot, you probably go with a strict schedule <laughs> any other time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, when you're traveling, do you prefer train or bus? Train. And last question. No, actually, where do you want to live permanently if you could live anywhere in the world? This is really tough. Um, but I think I would live in Australia, but somewhere warmer than Melbourne. Like probably the Queensland coast, um, somewhere up north there. 
on the East Coast, probably, yeah. Nice. And this this is the last question. It could be as long as you want it to be. What makes travel worth it to you personally? Just connection, human connection, cultural connection, um, and that leads to your personal development. Um, and just getting to know yourself better and making your choices and making yourself happy and being able to then make other people happy. You know, that's why I love my job too. Like, you just deal with happy people. You know, that's it's not a job anymore. You know, that's what I think travel brings. Whether I'm, I might be here in Uluru for three and a half years, but with all the visitors that I get in, I'm absorbing all their stories um, and their cultures as well. Um, and then I can then share that with other people. And then when I travel, you know, I'm sharing a bit of my culture um, and leaving a little part of me wherever I go as well, you know. And so I just like that connection and, and that's why he got to travel. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this conversation with your friends. You can find me on social media at TravelWorthLiving or on the web at TravelWorthLiving.com. I sincerely hope you'll join me again next week for another incredible conversation about travel. I'm Seth Sutherland, and this is Travel Worth Living.